We're still studying the Sermon on the Mount, what we're calling the best sermon ever, the sermon that Jesus delivered and recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're in Matthew 5 today. As we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, we've encountered this section where Jesus deals with six different topics in quick succession, where he gives us examples of how we're supposed to live as citizens of his kingdom, how to really love other people in real life. And so we've hit three pretty sensational ones so far. You start in Matthew 5, verse 21. Uh, We've seen murder and adultery and divorce. As we've looked at this, we've seen Jesus telling us that love, of course, means you don't murder, but it also means rejecting anger and instead pursuing reconciliation, forgiveness. Uh, Of course, love means not committing adultery, but also means guarding your eyes and your whole heart that you don't lust after others. Uh, we've seen, too, that, um, that love means, with, when it comes to divorce, that we are very, very slow to divorce, only for the most serious reasons and only when it's out of love. So today, we come off of this, this high mountain of these three sensational sins, and we get to Matthew 5.33, and it's not nearly as flashy, but it's very important. We're talking about the making and the keeping of oaths. Promises. Excuse me. The making and keeping of oaths. In most corners of Christianity, I think this paragraph doesn't get nearly as much attention as its neighbors. Uh, right before, we've got the passage about divorce. Right after, we talk about turning the other cheek. We talk about these things all the time, right? But we tend to skip by this passage on oaths. Seems unimportant, maybe irrelevant. But I think we ignore it at our peril because, in reality, This passage reminds us of something that's vitally important if we're really going to love one another. If we're going to love one another, we have to tell the truth. It's as simple as that. If we're going to love one another, we have to tell the truth. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's see if I need to do something with my microphone. What am I doing? Is it this? I know it's not your fault, kid. It's not. I said it before. All right. Maybe it's my pants. I don't know. If it keeps doing it, I will switch microphones. I'll be staying very still. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We're going to do two steps today as we look at this passage. It's really not that complicated. So first I want to just explain it. Look at the explanation. What does this passage mean? And then spend a little more time with application. How do we put this into practice in our real lives? First explanation. What does this passage mean? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been explaining how we truly love other people. And now he focuses in on our use of promises. And there's three basic points, I think, that are being made in this passage about promises and and oaths. First, that it's loving to keep your oath. Secondly, it's not loving to use oaths as a cover for dishonesty. And then finally, the most loving thing you could do is to treat every word you speak as trustworthy as an oath. 
Look first, he says, it's, it's loving to keep your oaths. In verse 33, he says, again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's found the same pattern here as we've seen Jesus explaining about anger uh, and murder and, and lust and adultery. He, he begins by quoting the Old Testament, and he's not denying the teaching of the Old Testament. Now, here he's not quoting a specific verse. It's more like a combination and paraphrase of a few different Old Testament passages. Some of the biggest, um, the biggest suspects that he's probably quoting, uh, Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of, the, of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, if you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. So the basic teaching is summarized pretty well by Jesus here. If you make a vow or promise to the Lord, you're supposed to keep it. And that's obviously a loving thing to do. If you make a promise, if you say you're going to do something, you should do it. And yet the Pharisees, in their tremendous ability to miss the point, interpret this biblical teaching as almost the exact opposite. Instead of using oaths the way they should be used, that is to intensify a statement and to guarantee that you're going to do something, they turn oaths into a means by which they can trick people and to make it a cover for dishonesty. And of course, that's not a loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to keep your promise, not to use a promise to trick people as a cover for dishonesty. Um, as we look at the Pharisees, they teach us how not to do things. Uh, the intent of the law is to make people keep the vows they make. But Pharisees, as they looked at what was said in Scripture and, and with a very close eye at the exact words used, key on the, in on the phrase, to the Lord. As in, in verse 33, um, you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Or in Numbers 30, verse 2, which I read earlier, if a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. And so the Pharisees looked at this and they said, no, technically, remember that's a dangerous word, technically, God only says we need to fulfill vows we make to the Lord. If we make a vow to the Lord, then we have to fulfill it. That's clear. But if we just make a vow in general, there's no verse that says we have to fulfill what we've promised. As long as you don't use the name of the Lord in your vow, it's a non-binding promise. But then the Pharisees also had these other rules where you couldn't actually use the name of the Lord, trying to protect themselves from breaking that commandment. And so they came up with all these other words that they could use that were close enough to the name of the Lord that it was valid as a substitute for the name of the Lord. So if you used those words, then your vow was binding. But if you used other words that weren't on their list, then it wasn't a binding vow. We see this in Matthew 23, where Jesus calls the Pharisees to task. In Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, he says this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. 
you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, in their world, they'd made these distinctions. If you swore by the temple or the altar, that was not a binding oath. You didn't have to do that. But if you swore by the gold on the temple or the gift on the altar, then you had to keep your word. And the heaven, earth, Jerusalem, were all in the same category of non-binding things. You're not technically swearing to the Lord, so they don't count. But Jesus calls them on the foolishness of this. He says in Matthew 5, 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. He's saying you think that technically you can get away with breaking this oath because you only swore by heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is where God lives. It's the same thing. You, oh, I only swore by earth. It's his footstool. He made the earth. It, it counts. I just swore by Jerusalem. It's his city. Well, what if I swear by my head? That, you know, that's mine. You fool. You can't even make one hair on your head black or white, naturally, of course. I mean, we, we can use hair dye. But, so you're not in control of your head. You can't even control your own head. That's God's head. You swear by yourself, you're still swearing by God. He's saying any oath you make is a binding oath. There's no such thing as this technical category where you can promise one thing, but do whatever else you want. And it's clear, right? It's obvious. You know the Pharisees are being idiots while they're doing this. So why do they do it? Why did they work so hard to create a category that doesn't exist of non-binding oaths? What's in it for them? Well, it's very useful, isn't it? It's very useful to have this category of non-binding oaths. You can promise and say whatever you need to say to get what you want. But then when it gets hard or uncomfortable, just do whatever you want. Right? You promise the moon, but you don't actually have to deliver because it was a non-binding oath. It's very useful. Kids know how useful this is, right? What do kids do to make a non-binding oath? I mean, what do they do? Cross your fingers, right? Cross your fingers. They'll say whatever they need to say to get whatever outcome they want, and then when the push comes to shove, oh, my fingers were crossed. It doesn't count. People have been doing this for years, maybe not with literal finger crossing, but trying to get what you want, manipulating people with your words, promising the moon, but not delivering. There's a guy by the name of John Huss. Um, he lived about 100 years before Martin Luther. So before Luther kicked off the Reformation, there's this guy named John Huss. He was a, a Czech person, lived in Bohemia. And he was a reformer before Luther uh, made it popular. Uh, he protested against some of the same exact uh, excesses of the Catholic Church that Luther was protesting against, and he got in a lot of trouble for it, just like Luther did. So at that time, when, when Huss was um, trying to reform, there were three popes, count them, three, three Catholic popes. Uh, the church had been splitting, and there was a, a new king in Germany named King Sigismund. And this king was trying really hard to make his mark. And he thought, if I can get these popes together and reconcile the Catholic Church, then I will be somebody. And he knew to do that, he had to get John Huss at the table. He had to deal with this heretic that was causing all these troubles. So he got the three popes to agree to come to the table, but, but John Huss wasn't an idiot. He knew that if he went to that meeting, he's going to get killed. 
So the king promised Mr. Huss safe conduct. Just come to the meeting. Let's, let's talk it out. I will pledge my protection to you. You will not be killed. You will have safe passage here and back. We just want you at the table. So Huss said, okay, you gave me your guarantee as the king. I will come to this meeting. Guess what happened? He got there. The popes began pressuring the king, saying, look, if you, if you want us at the table, you've got to deal with this heretic. You've got to kill this guy. We're going to leave. And the king's like, well, there goes my legacy. So he decides that he's going to break his word to John Huss. And he's imprisoned. He's tried. He's burned at the stake. The word's broken. Uh-uh-uh. But the pope said, no, 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 no. It's okay. Because your fingers were crossed. They said, it's technically, technically, you didn't break your word because you promised to a heretic. And promises to heretics, we all know, are non-binding. So you actually didn't break your word. You were promised to a heretic, and, and it, so it doesn't count, and everything's cool, king. You're fine. Your fingers were crossed. Right? We, we still try to get away with this today. We love non-binding oaths. We love the capability to promise one thing and do another. We don't cross our fingers, but we say things that we never intend to do. We keep our word selectively just so we get what we want. And Jesus says these sort of non-binding promises are useful, yes, but they're wicked. They come from the evil one. It's unloving to say one thing, to give assurance that you'll do it, and then to back out on a technicality. So Jesus says, if that's what you're going to use oaths for, if that's how you're going to use promises as a justification to manipulate other people to get what you want and then back out, if you're just going to use oaths as a cover for dishonesty, don't use them at all. You don't actually need oaths, you know, to be honest. You don't need them to be honest. In fact, Jesus says the most loving thing you can do is for every word you speak to be as trustworthy as an oath. You don't need oaths if you're simply honest. In verse 37, so verse 36, Jesus says, Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. Other translations um, are a little more literal, probably more familiar to you. Where Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. That's all you have to do. Just, just say what you mean. Mean what you say. Back when my grandfather, grandfather was farming in this area, um, he would buy and sell things on a handshake. Everybody did it, right? You didn't have to swear an oath. You didn't have to sign a contract because you were just honest. If you said something, you meant it. If you said it, you did it. And we, the same applies for us today. If you're simply honest all the time, you don't need oaths. In fact, the very idea that you need an oath implies that your everyday words are not trustworthy. This is why I feel ashamed anytime my kids say, do you promise? Because what that implies is that my ordinary conversation, my ordinary yes and my ordinary no are not trustworthy enough. That if I say yes, they really need to back it up with something else. Like, Dad, you say yes all the time, but really, do you mean it? To require an oath is a sign that our ordinary words aren't trustworthy in themselves. So Jesus comes back again to the heart of the matter. He says, yes, of course, if you make an oath, keep your oath. 
That would be the loving thing to do. But you know what's even better than that? To not need an oath in the first place. To simply live such an honest life that every word you say is as trustworthy as an oath. That's the explanation. That's what this passage means. That's what Jesus is driving at. He's saying if you're going to really love people, just tell the truth. So how do we do that? Let's think a little bit about that application and how do we put this into practice in real life? Let's move beyond simply tell the truth. And I think there's two basic ideas. If we're going to be the sort of people who don't need oaths, the sort of people whose word is as good as a promise, then there's two big things we need to do. Um, First, we need to say what we mean. Second, we need to do what we said we would do. Okay, Say what you mean and do what you say you do. Say what you mean. That was the Pharisees' problem. They didn't say what they meant. They were trying to hide what they meant. They would say whatever they needed to to get the outcome they wanted. They would say yes, but mean no. And then they'd wrap it in one of these non-binding oaths so that you believe them. But the whole point of the oath, I mean, it wasn't a binding oath. Why would they take a non-binding oath? Because they're trying to trick you. They're trying to say the opposite of what they mean and convince you that they're saying yes. It's not supposed to be like that in God's kingdom. We're supposed to say what we mean. If the answer is yes, just say yes. If the answer is no, say no. So if you have an annoying coworker at work who's always bugging you to do some work for them, they don't leave you alone. If the answer is no, you're not going to do the work for them, say no. Don't say yes just to get rid of them with no intention that you're going to do the work. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. If your child asks you tough questions, like, did you ever do drugs? Or anything else that you were ashamed of? Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Because they're going to find out eventually, and then they're not going to trust you. Right? If you're selling that used car in the summertime that only acts up in the wintertime, and the buyer says, does it run well? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Say, yes, in the summer it runs well, but in the winter it has this problem. In fact, you should say that before the buyer even asks. Because we're honest, right? It's pretty simple in theory. As followers of Jesus, we should strive to tell the plain, honest truth. To just say what you mean. Say what you mean even when you're afraid of hurting someone's feelings. It's a great example that changed my thinking on this. There's a friend of mine who worked as a missionary for a while. And as a missionary, he had to raise his own support, visiting people, calling people, asking them for money. And you think that would be horrible, right? That'd be a horrible job to have to go ask people for money. You know, he said the worst part was, it wasn't when people said no. That was not the worst part. He said the worst part was when he talked to people who said yes when they meant no. So that was the worst. The people who said no, he actually thanked them. He got to the point where he was thanking them because at least he knew the answer was no. And he could move on and he could talk to other people and ask them. And he wasn't expecting anything from these yes people. But the folks who said yes while meaning no, just because they didn't want to hurt his feelings, they didn't have the courage to be honest, um, he had to keep following up with them. He had to keep asking. He would expect that they would be giving something and then they wouldn't. He'd have to find, make up for that shortfall. And he said the, the best thing that people, I mean, of course he wanted people to say yes, but he said the best thing is just when people were honest. 
They said no when they meant no. It's more loving to say what you mean. I would dare even suggest today, I'm feeling brave, that you should say what you mean when your spouse asks you, do I look good in this? It may seem foolish. You may think, Dan, no, you're an idiot. Um, But think, think about the fruit of not telling the truth. If your spouse is in fact wearing something that he or she does not look good in, but you tell them, yes, you look good. If you always tell them, yes, you look good. They're going to find out. They're going to know eventually that they don't look good. And what will happen to your word, to your opinion? It will be totally devalued. It will be as if you said nothing, because they know no matter what I ask, they're always going to say, you look good. So then when the time comes that your spouse really does look good, and you're telling them, yes, you look wonderful, you look beautiful, they're not going to believe you. And what are you going to do? You're going to reach back for the promise, I swear to God. Now I'm really serious. And we've come full circle, haven't we? You shouldn't need no's. If you just told the truth, if you just let your yes be yes and your no, no, then your yes would mean something. And your no would mean something. The same with our children. When you're praising your children or your grandchildren, say what you mean. If something that your kid does is not, in fact, awesome, do not tell them it was awesome. Always telling your kid that everything they do is awesome leads them to never believe you. You can trust me on this. I'm a child of the self-esteem generation. I have closets of, self, of participation trophies. If you tell your kid that they are a great singer, when in reality they are not a great singer, they will eventually find out, hopefully not auditioning for American Idol, but they'll eventually find out. And what happens when your kid learns that they're not a great singer? They're not going to believe you about that. Not not only that, they're not going to believe you about anything you say to them. They won't believe you when you tell them they're good at math, even if they are, in fact, good at math because you've poisoned the well. That's the fruit of disingenuously praising our children. Just let your yes be yes. If your kid's not a great singer, of course, don't tear them down. It's not your job to destroy them. But don't lie to them. Make your word mean something. Then when you actually do give them encouragement, and I hope it's often, That encouragement will be actually encouraging because it's the truth. Because your yes is a yes, your no is a no, your word means something. We could keep going in every square inch of our life because this is all pervasive. Jesus wants us to tell the truth. In all of our lives, we should simply say what we mean. Yes, with tact, yes, in love, but always the truth. And once you say what you mean, the next step is to do what you said you would do. The the benefit of oaths, the appeal of oaths, is that they're binding. They force action. That's why they exist. You you promise to do something, you make us take our words seriously so that we actually do what we said. So if we want to live our lives without oaths, then we need to take our words seriously. We need to say that every word we say, every promise that we make, every yes that we give is a binding yes, that we will actually do what we said we'd do. Talk is cheap. We have to move beyond that. So we say, yes, I'll do it. We have to do it. Even if we didn't promise, even if there's no contract, simply because we said it. If we're going to do that, I think there's three dangers that we need to avoid. The dangers of quitting, forgetting, and overcommitting. 
We need to watch out for quitting. This is, you say, yes, I'll do something. Then once you get into it, it's too hard. We touched on this last week as we talked about marriage and some of the frivolous reasons why we divorce. I mean, there's a situation where you actually do still give an oath, a binding promise before God and man that you will stay with this person. And in many folks, not in every case, but many folks end their marriages simply because it's too hard. It's not what I signed up for. And you say, even though I said I would commit to you, I, I'm just going to quit. Or our commitment to a church. So yeah, I'm, I am a member of a church. I made a commitment to this church, but that was before so-and-so hurt my feelings. And now it's just too hard, and I need to leave. This is just not an option according to Jesus. If we commit to doing something and then later find out it's not exactly what we signed up for, it's not what we wanted, if we said we would do it, we need to do it. That's what it means for your yes to be yes. So if you find yourself like that in a a less-than-ideal situation, it's proving costly to you to keep your word. Don't quit. Keep your word. Let your yes be yes. Pay the cost. But it's not always an issue of quitting. Sometimes it's just about forgetting, a little more honest mistake. Sometimes we say yes, we mean yes, but then we forget that we said yes. Does that get us off the hook? Well, I meant to do it, I just totally forgot. Well, it doesn't get us off the hook, it just means we need a different solution. So if if you're the sort of person who uh, you want your yes to be yes, but you're unreliable because you're always missing appointments or you're forgetting responsibilities, it may be that the most spiritual thing that you can do is get an appointment book or a calendar or an app for your phone to help you keep track of your responsibilities. You know, you think that's not very spiritual. It could be the most loving thing you could do to help your spiritual life to grow in this area of being honest and truthful and committed and letting your yes be yes, to actually keep track of the things you say yes to so that you don't forget about them and you do them. It could be really loving to get a system in place that will help you to do what you say you will do. And this is fresh on my mind because this is an area where I am growing right now and need a lot more growth. But if you're interested in exploring this more, there's some, some books I've been reading lately that are helpful, some other um, systems I've put in place that help. I'd, be loved, I'd love to talk with, that, talk with you about that if that's some area that you're like, yes, that is me. But sometimes we just need help remembering that we said yes. The final danger, though, is sometimes it's not just quitting or forgetting. Sometimes it's overcommitting. That is, you want to do what you've said. You mean yes. You have it down on your list. You see it there, but it's there with a million other things. And you literally do not have enough time in the day or enough effort or energy that could make all those things happen. The solution there is simply to let your no be no more often. Right? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He doesn't say you have to say yes to everything. He says, consider it. Consider it. Consider what's going on. And and if you really can do it or not, weigh the cost before you sign up. If you can do it, then say yes and stick with it. But if you can't, say no and let your no be no. Find your limits. Work within them. It's not loving to say yes when you can't do it. Remember my missionary friend. Okay? There are people who had limits. They could not give to support him. It was not loving for them to pretend like they could and not be able to. The loving thing to do is to say no. Whatever the reason, whether it's quitting or forgetting or overcommitting, 
our obligation is clear. As followers of Jesus, we need to do what we said we would do. That's what it means to make your yes, yes, and your no, no. Let's close. Just to recap. Oaths in themselves are not a bad thing. If you've made an oath, the most loving thing you can do is to keep your oath. But because oaths are so easily misused, so prone to dishonesty and actually accomplishing the opposite of what they intend, Jesus says the best thing to do is just let every word you say be as reliable and trustworthy as an oath. Of course, this is impossible to do perfectly. So thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace. We all fail to let our yes be yes, our no be no. We fail in this area as much as any other. But just because we fail and rely on his grace for forgiveness doesn't mean we give up. Instead, the goal is to try by his grace to love other people truly by saying what we mean and doing what we say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouragement. It is a hard, hard challenge for me to hear. I just want to say yes to people, even when I can't do things. I want to overpromise and underliver. Uh, Lord, I think many of us are like that. I pray you'd help us to make our words trustworthy, true, reliable, dependable, that we wouldn't need an oath, but folks would know that when we say something, we mean it. Not that we would get uh, great heads or you know, inflated opinions of ourselves, that folks would extol us, but that folks would look and see, it's those Christians. They're the ones who keep their word, even when it hurts. What's different about them? Why would they do that? Oh, and that our, our very truth-telling would be a means of evangelism, pointing other people to the wonder of being your children. We pray this in Jesus' name.